Well, today we're going to uh, sort of revisit something that was introduced uh, last week, a topic that we talked about um, last week, a difficult um, talk, topic to talk about and maybe um, slightly embarrassing sometimes to talk about. Uh, Christians and today talking about God's wrath is not a popular thing, but we're going to be talking about God's wrath today, um, his righteous anger against sin. Now, we are in a series on the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And what we said last week was Malachi uh, was written to a group of Israelites who were coming back from their exile to Babylon, and they were being brought back into the land, into Jerusalem, in order that they might rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed a hundred years prior to that. So they're coming back into the land, and by the time Malachi is written, they are already back in the land. Uh, the temple has already been rebuilt, and there's already sacrifices that are being made. And so they, you'd probably think, okay, they must be really happy about all that happening. And there's a certain sense in which they, they are, but they've also been through a pretty hard time. They, they are back in the land, but they're still under foreign power. They're under the Persian Empire at this time. Their crops are being eaten by pests. There are subsequent financial problems that kind of go along with that. And then on top of that, the temple that has been rebuilt didn't have the same kind of glory that the previous temple had. And some people are especially disappointed about that. So when they looked at their surroundings, some of the people began to say, well, maybe God doesn't love us. Uh, maybe God isn't worthy of our honor. Maybe God isn't just. So all these wrong ideas about God began to be planted in their hearts and in their mind. And whenever we believe the wrong things uh, or hold the wrong things in our heart, that kind of plays itself out in how we live. And so their worship was half-hearted. Their uh, marriages were really struggling. There was a lot of broken marriages at the time. There was injustice in the land. All of that flowed out of them looking at the, their circumstances and, de and determining certain things about God, certain wrong ideas about God. And that's the situation into which Malachi speaks. So Yahweh, the Lord, he speaks through the prophet Malachi, and he sort of addresses all of those wrong ideas and all of those sinful responses in these six disputes that happen throughout the book of Malachi where God, he'll bring up a truth claim, he'll defend that truth claim, but then that truth claim is then disputed by God's people. Now, so last week we talked about the first dispute of these six disputes. And in that first dispute, God makes the truth claim, I have loved you with a covenant love, right? A love that's built on promises where there's an expectation for faithfulness. That's what a covenant is about. So like a marriage is a covenant. It's built on promises, and there's an expectation for faithfulness. And so Yahweh says, I have loved you with a covenant love, but do you remember I, the Israel's rebuttal to that? Yeah, right. Like, tell us how you have loved us. Right? And then what Yahweh does in his answer, the way he defends that, he gives kind of an interesting answer that maybe, well, we'll get there. I was going to say, it kind of, it might grate on your ears. But what Yahweh says is, well, don't you remember Edom? 
how I wiped out the, that people that stood opposed to you? Right? Remember when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem? Did they help you? No. Did they scoff at you? Yes. Did they loot Jerusalem? Yes. Did they capture your refugees? Yes. Did they kill your refugees? Yes. Do you remember Edom? Well, I wiped them out. I, I defended you in that kind of way. Uh, how did you love us? Well, I took care of Edom, and I, I poured out my wrath on them. I made their land a desert, and it's, there's just jackals there now. And, and my, I, if they try to rebuild the way that you have rebuilt, I won't let it happen forever. No, okay, so now... Some of you, you were here last week, and you're like, okay, yeah, that's right. I re I'm still getting over that message that we talked about um, la last week. So why are we going over the same verses again? Well, I, I just want to acknowledge a couple of things, uh, and I've kind of alluded to it already. One, um, Malachi's message sounds a little foreign to us, right? Uh, and on top of that, for some of us, Malachi's message feels a little uncomfortable, if not offensive, um, to our, our, our modern ears. I mean, even, even Christian modern ears. Can you guys imagine if a commercial came on K-Love that sounded like Malachi? Thank you for joining us on your morning commute. And remember, God loves you and hates the Edomites and will pour out his wrath on them forever, right? Like that, I'm not sure if I feel positive and encouraging, you know, after that, you know? Like, um, so it's kind of, it's kind of a lot. Like, and, and so how should we think about these kinds of things? So I, I just want to, before moving forward, because in Malachi, the, the message of Malachi is largely built on this first dispute. So, so we have to kind of like, all right, let's, let's take inventory of where we are. And just kind of like, maybe, maybe we need to slow down a little, little bit. Now, next time we're together, we're going to dive a little bit deeper on that, into that troubling statement where God says, Esau, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're not going to talk about that this week. I'll, the teaser is, it probably isn't what you think it means. It probably doesn't mean what you think it means. But nevertheless, it's still a hard truth. Um, and, and we'll, we'll kind of cover that the, the next time that we're together. But today, I, I want to focus our attention on the topic of God's wrath and Yahweh's statement that he makes to the Edomites in verse 4 when he says, And they, remember, Esau's descendants are the Edomites, the, Jacob's brother. He says, And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And I want to ask the question, can a good God get angry? Can a good God get angry? And how should we think about God's wrath or his righteous anger against sin? Now, to get at that question, I want to try to answer three sort of related questions. So the first question that I want to try to answer is, okay, is this teaching about God's wrath, is it kind of unique to Malachi? Or is it found elsewhere in the Bible? That's, that seems important to try to figure out. The second question that I want to ask is, okay, what makes God's wrath feel like a problem? Uh, feel like 
uh, sort of a liability. Like, uh, it's uncomfortable for us to talk about it. Why is that? that that's, that's what I want to cover in our second point as we, we look at that second question. And then lastly, I want to ask the question, is God's wrath really compatible with God's love? So those three questions are what we're going to be uh, walking through this morning. So let's think about the first. The first question is, is this teaching on God's wrath, is it unique to Malachi? Or, or do you find it other places in the Bible? So in Malachi, the picture that is given of God is that he is taking his vengeance out on his enemies, the Edomites, because they stand opposed to him and his people, his kingdom plan and his people. Is that taught elsewhere in the Bible? So I want to point to two different texts. One is in the Old Testament and one is in the New Testament. And I want to do that because you might meet people who say, Well, maybe I can buy the fact that God's wrath is found in the Old Testament. There's no way that it's in the New Testament. So so there's people who might like come come at the Bible that way. So let's just figure out, let's let's see what's in the New and Old Testament. So the passage I want to point to in the Old Testament comes from Nahum. So Nahum is another Old Testament minor prophet. And his... Nahum's like even harder to read than Malachi, by the way. But, but Nahum, he is speaking an oracle of judgment against the city of Nineveh, right? And the city of Nineveh is the capital city of what? You remember? Assyria, the empire of Assyria. And that's the empire that took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 722 BC. So that, that happened before Malachi. But nevertheless, now, so... Nahum is now speaking a prophecy against Assyria, and this is what Nahum says, uh, beginning in Nahum chapter 1 in the latter part of verse 2. It says, the Lord, so we're talking about Yahweh, Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And then in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? So this word indignation is the same word that is translated Um, anger in Malachi chapter 1 verse 4. So who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by them. Now something similar is said by Ezekiel regarding the the people of Edom in Ezekiel chapter 25, uh, 25 verse 14 and then the people of the Philistines. The Philistines He says the same kind of thing against the Philistines in Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 17. So Nahum's talking about it, Ezekiel's talking about it, and a lot of the prophets are actually talking in this way about God who, as he is coming against those who come against him, his plan, and God's people. So that's sort of like the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, the apostle Paul when he is speaking to some persecuted Christians in the city of Thessalonica, he says these words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, since God considers it just or right, God considers it right to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when the, that's when the judgment happens. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, Jesus says something similar when he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats, like in Matthew chapter 25, uh, when Paul says something similar again in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, and then the apostle John says something similar. Well, it's kind of dotted throughout the book of Revelation, but one place would be Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. So you've got Paul, Jesus, the Apostle John, the prophets. Seems like they all agree <clears throat> that God can get angry and bring vengeance on his enemies, all those who stand opposed to his plan and to his people. And it also seems like the authors of the Bible have no trouble reconciling that with God's goodness and God's love, because they talk about God's goodness and God's love all the time too. In fact, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, and right after the passage that I read to you, it says, the next thing he says, the Lord is good. And especially for those who, <clears throat> he, he, they go into the ref, his refuge when his wrath comes, the Lord is, is, is good. Right? <clears throat> now, What's also interesting is that in um, ancient times and also in modern traditional cultures, right, we're offended by God bringing judgment and, and wrath. That, that offends us. But for more traditional cultures, they actually get offended that God forgives too quickly. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Right? I, I was reading one author who was a Croatian who went through like terrible oppression under the Balkans. And he said, yeah, this idea of like not being okay with God's judgment, that must be born out of the very peaceful, quiet suburbs of America. Because in Croatia, we're like, God, pl like, please come and deliver us from wickedness. Right? So <clears throat> there's this pendulum that swings back and, and forth between you know, how we feel in modern times in the West, how traditional cultures feel, how ancient people have felt about, about this topic. But, but why is it that we struggle with it? Like, like I, I'm, I mean, I'm admitting to you, it's like, this feels like a struggle, like to me. Like, I get, I, I'm like, my nerves in my stomach right now are like, oh gosh, I might, you know, there's even visitors, you know, it's like, how, we're talking about this, you know, like, why is that? that? That brings us to our second question. What makes God's wrath feel like such a liability, like such a problem? Um, there's probably a lot of ways to answer that question, but there, I want to talk just today about three common misconceptions when it comes to the wrath of God. Uh, one is that we greatly minimize sin. We'll talk about that. The other is that when we think about his wrath, we are sort of thinking about it through the lens of the wrath of other people that we have seen. And then third, we, we imagine God's wrath falling on people who really love God. Those are three things that, that uh, kind of get in the way of us really understanding what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about God's wrath. So let's kind of like walk through that. 
One misconception that we have, or, or one sort of misstep that, that gets in the way of us really understanding this, is that we fail to grasp the gravity of sin. Right? And it's kind of understandable in a way, uh, because we're just sort of like um, immersed in it. Not, not only just from, with, it's not like us versus them, it's like, uh, immersed in, like I'm immersed in sin in here, right? In here and without, right? So have you ever um, noticed that it, it, people struggle with understanding the dysfunction of their family of origin? Like they don't really, act, they don't really see the dysfunction of their family of origin. And then you, let's say you move out of your house, right? And then you, you move back in. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. They're, okay, yeah, I remember this. There's some dysfunction. Different level. All families are dysfunctional. I don't see you guys. There's, there's some dysfunction in, in every family, right? And there's different levels uh, of that. But sometimes you come back, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember. This is pretty dysfunctional. Or, or have you ever had a friend who's in an abusive type of relationship, right? And they don't see it. And you're, you can see it clear as day, right? But they don't see it. Right, it's it's because they're immersed in it. They're they're too close to it. It's too familiar to them. And in the same way, we're like we're too close to our own sin. Right, we're just used to it. We're we're used to the sin in, in, in the world. Right, <clears throat> but what Psalms fourteen says, and, and and Paul will quote this in in Romans chapter three, is that God comes down. Basically, the idea is God comes down to the earth. This is a metaphor, but He comes down to the earth and He looks and He says, "I, I wonder if anybody is not corrupt here. I wonder if any anybody does good things here." And He says, "No, not one." And you're like, "Wait a minute! <clears throat> I know people who do good stuff." Like, well. Let's think about what we mean by sin, what we mean by good for just a second. If you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and normally that's a passage that's pointed to, familiar to you, because it's, it kind of teaches us about the universality of sin. But, but there's also more going on in that passage than just that. It says, for all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a, sense of, there's, there's a, a correlation between the idea of sin and falling short of the glory of God. What, what does that mean? Well, this is how we're supposed to be designed. We're made in God's image. You remember that from Genesis chapter 1? So part of what that means is that we are to reflect true things about God and his character in the world as a result of being united to him. Like you, you can't reflect good things about God in the world without being united to him. That's an impossibility. It's like a lamp that's not plugged into the wall and then expecting it to turn on. It does not work that way. But so we reflect God in the world as we are plugged into him and then, and then we shine and that, and that way we glorify him. Right, so now that puts sin in a different perspective, right? Because when we think about sin in terms of like, okay, don't do this bad thing. Like don't shoot people. Don't uh, uh, steal from the 7-Eleven. Don't lie to your parents. We're like, okay, I think that's kind of manageable. Lying to my parents is a little bit harder. But that's not what, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, any way in which you fall short of shining God's truth and life and light out into the world as a result of being plugged into him, anything short of that is like sin completely against God's design for the world. Oh. 
Okay, now I, okay, now maybe I can understand God coming down and saying, I can't even find one person who's doing good. Or, or what about what Jesus says to Nicodemus after the famous part of John chapter 3 and more into the harder part of John chapter 3 <clears throat> when he says this in verse 19. I'll just bring up all the hard path, you know. Um, verse, uh, verse 19 in John chapter 3 says this. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And this is the judgment. The NIV translates that verdict. This is the verdict. This is what I've concluded is what Jesus is saying. The light has come into the world. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. Even in John. John 8 will say that. I've come into the world, basically is what Jesus is saying. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works are evil. And then what John's going to go on to explain is we don't like to bring our works into the light because then we'll be exposed. Right? So what does that all mean? It means that we prefer darkness and hiding in the darkness than Jesus. This is the point that I'm making. We, okay, we're not reflecting who God is in, is in the world. We're not doing that. We often, in our flesh, prefer the darkness and keeping sins hidden in the darkness over Jesus, right? So what that all kind of boils down to is that I think we've greatly underestimated our sin because, I mean, just look around. I hate to tell you guys this, but we're all sinners. So if we compare ourselves to one another, it's like, well, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing a little better. I'm doing a little better than this guy, or you know, like this guy. You know, like we look at each other, and then, but it, but God's kind of going like, uh, like this is not what my like you know wars and uh, this is not what I thought. This is not what I created the world for, right? This is not my vision of a good good world, right? <clears throat> and so we we so we think right because we're so inundated by sin. This clouds our way of thinking. We minimize sin, and then when it comes to God's wrath, we say, you know what? I think God's overreacting. He's overreacting. But that, like, so that's one thing that gets in the way of us really understanding what the Bible is teaching about God's wrath. Number two, another thing that gets in the way is that when we think about God's wrath, we often are thinking about it in terms or through the lens of what we see, have seen wrath look like in other people. So have you ever, um, anybody grow up with a quick-tempered parent? Or you don't have to raise your hand if you don't. <laughs> you can't out them here. Okay. Um, yeah, oh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, we'll take, okay, right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to, don't, don't raise, yeah, don't raise your hand. Like, this is all being videotaped. Your parents are watching this. Um, but but if if you've if you've grown up with a quick <laughs> if if you've grown up with a quick-tempered parent or a quick-tempered you know authority figure, right? Who's whose anger it like comes up quick and then it's kind of out of control, right? And sometimes it's self-indulgent, right? It's almost like they're enjoying just 
venting their wrath. Maybe their boss was mad at them at work. Now they're at home. And now it's like, okay, now you guys are going to get it. You know what I mean? And then, like, it's just that, you know, and then it's very easy for us to take those experiences that are very difficult, right, and then project that onto God. That's what God's wrath must be like, right? But God is not like that. God is not quick-tempered. God's anger is not out of control. It's actually very focused uh, on sin, right? And this is how God describes himself to Moses, for example, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which is a very important verse for the whole Old Testament, when he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God is not quick-tempered. He's slow to anger. Let's think about this for a second. Because when Andrew was reading Malachi 1, 2 through 5, did it feel like he was slow to anger? Or did it feel like, ooh, gosh. Right? Or other, Nahum, when I read that, it was like, oh. But let's think about that for a second. How much time do you think lapsed from Esau despising his birthright and the promise of the Lord to the, and then that kind of disposition towards God and God's people uh, being in the people of Edom where they were standing in the way of them coming through the promised land. They're not helping them when the Babylonians come. They're killing the refugees, all of that. And the time of this judgment that he's talking about. How, how, much, how much time do you think that, that took? Almost 2,000 years. Quick to anger? Slow to anger. Can you imagine being in a grocery store and somebody's kids, not my kids, never my kids. Let's imagine, I heard a story told once. I'm asking for another person. Imagine being in a grocery store and you see these kids, they're climbing on the shelves, and they're throwing down all the product, right? And the parent, and they just keep going, and they're upset, and they're screaming. This is happening at Lowe's, Matt. And, and, and then, and then the, you see the parent. How would you feel about this, Matt? You see the, the parents there, and they're going, Johnny, Johnny, stop. Stop. Come back to me. I'll, I'll hold you. I know you're upset. I'll, I'll hold you, and, and we'll make this right. Johnny, please, repent. Come back to me. I'll, I'll hold you. I'll, I'll, make, I'll make it right. You don't, you don't have to do all this. You're, you're ruining this good store. Like, what, what if they did that? What if that parent did that for two minutes? Two whole minutes. <laughs> yeah. What about ten minutes? Two hours. The, the kids are just destroying the store. Like, you would be, what, what, what is wrong with this parent? Right? You, oh, you'd be whooping their butt. Okay, so that's, <laughs> that's Bobby's answer, all right? <laughs> you, you would be like, you, you would understand how the ancients felt about this. Like, Habakkuk is like, how long, God? How, how long? Like, everybody, they're ruining the good store. These kids, they're everywhere. Are you going to stop it? So, and God's like, no, 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 
I, 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 I want people to come to me. Wow. This is a different, like, way to think about this, right? So he's not quick-tempered, right? He's, he's not out of control, and he's not cruel. Um, he doesn't take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. This is what Yahweh says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God delights in repentance, not judgment. He says something similar in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when he says that he's not willing for what? Any to perish, but for all to what? Come to repentance. So one reason why we, we don't really have a, a, a good handle on God's wrath is because we greatly minimize sin. Are you like, well, every, all, everybody else is pulling stuff off the shelves and making a mess of the store? What's the big deal? That's how we think about it. That's one thing that gets in the way. Another thing that gets in, in the way is when we think about God's wrath, we think about it in terms of wrath that we've seen in other people, which is almost always, it is possible, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but it's possible for you to have righteous anger, right? How often do we see that? It's very rare. <laughs> you know, it, it's usually tainted with some unrighteousness at least, right? But God's, God's wrath is always righteous 100% of the time. A third obstacle that gets in the way of us really understanding God's wrath is that we think, we can get the mistaken idea that God's wrath is falling on people who would choose God's love and God's people if they were just given the opportunity, they would do that. Right, we, we, we think that. And this kind of shows up in a misconception that we have even on like perhaps one of the hardest subjects to think about, which is hell. We, we think, a lot of us, we think, okay, what's hell like? Well, the people in hell, what they're doing is, oh man, I made a mistake. Now that I have new information... I want to be with you, God. I love you. I repent. Please, won't you let me come? And God's going, nope, nope, you had your chance. That, that's how most people think about hell. That's not happening in hell. The, the, the people in hell, that's not what unregenerated people say. Right? Instead, what they're saying looks a lot more like what the Lord anticipated what the Edomites would say after their judgment. When it says in verse 4, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. Right? Like she, so judgment comes, the Edomites don't say, oh, now we see like, how wrong we've been. We repent. They don't say that. They say we've been crushed, but we will rebuild the ruins. Right? And, and I, okay, so I'm going to, now let's, let's, Let's get even more controversial. <laughs> um, when I think about like, like COVID-19, and I do not know this. I do not know this. Please don't, don't tweet this. Don't. I, in the Bible, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes pestilence is a judgment. Some, but it's not, but God's never, it's not cruelty never is what's driving God. He, maybe he wants to get us our, our attention so that we would, turn to him, right? 
But what I, sometimes on the news, what I hear sounds a lot like, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. And it's like, ooh, okay. Um, how about, I, Lord, I don't know if, if this is your judgment. I don't, know, I don't know that. I don't know the mind of God. I don't, right? But God, you have my attention, very least. And I want to I want to turn my heart to you. See, I, I think I think hell, if I can talk about it, is full of people who are saying that. Right? They're not saying we repent, we realize we now love you. They're saying, oh, we'll show you. Just give us a couple, just just give us a little more time. We're gonna make hell even better than heaven. Right, and we'll just we're gonna we're gonna pursue ourselves, right? And we're gonna pursue our own agendas. Forget you, God. We're gonna make this, and it and people will do that forever. So it'll be like now, except for God's common grace is sort of restraining things now, and God's grace will not restrain things. Everybody will do what's right in their own eyes, and they will seek what they think will bring them pleasure forever. And that's the weird thing about it. Because the pleasure that they seek is never going to give them pleasure. So, and, and that's, that, that's how I understand hell. This goes on that way for, forever. So the problem that we have is not an information problem. It's a heart problem. It, it, it's a desire of the heart problem. right? We, we, actually, we actually don't want in our flesh... We don't want God. We would prefer things be our, our own way. And so we make a mistake when we think, okay, God's wrath is falling on those who really actually would choose him and love him. Right? Instead, what is happening, God in his wrath, what God's wrath kind of amounts to, at least in part, is God giving unrepentant sinners what they want. Okay, you don't want to live under my loving reign. Okay. Don't. Forever. And Paul says just about that in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that assume? that they know some truth, right? And then, and then Romans goes on to say, like, truth that comes from creation. There's truth that comes from your, your conscience, right? And you, you suppress that. And instead of acknowledging God, you do this instead in verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. So read idols. And then what he does is he he gives them what they want. He gives them over three times. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Is Melissa okay? I think. Oh, are you okay, Melissa? Yeah, I do that to people sometimes. Yeah, I understand. 
So, so what, what God does, in going back to Romans, is he gives them up three times. I'll read them again. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. One. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Two. And then thirdly, in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So God says, like, okay, you want to follow your heart. Follow your heart. Go and follow your heart, is what he says. Go on and do that. He gave them what they, they wanted. So God's wrath is not the problem. It's our sin that, that, that's the, the problem. We don't, we don't think our sin is that bad, and we think God is overreacting. But God is actually, he's, he's looking at all the ways in which we don't turn to him and unite ourselves to him by faith and the, the subsequent ways in which we mistreat one another. And he says, I, re- I just, I do not like that. I, I don't like that. And I'm not going to let it go on forever because I love the world too much. And and this is part of how God's wrath and God's love comes together, which brings us to our third and final question. Is God's wrath compatible? Is it really compatible with God's love? So the Bible is sort of built on the premise that what makes God good and loving is that he's making a good world where people willingly love him and they willingly love one another. So is that a world with sin or no sin? A world with no sin. So the the Bible's sort of built on that premise. So doesn't it therefore follow that if God is a good God, he must be a wrathful God? He must come against sin? See, sometimes when we think about wrath and we think about God's love, we, we try to just get the proportions right. Like, okay, he's, he's like 75% love, 25% wrath, or, oh, that's too much. Let's dial it back. It's not that. It, God is God, right? It's like two sides of the same coin, right? If God is adamant about good in the world, that means he's going to be adamant about getting evil out of the world. Right, so, so those two ideas kind of go together. God's wrath and God's love go together, and they're chiefly seen where? On the cross. God the Father, you, you, if you want to see God's wrath, if you want to see God's love together, look to the cross, the most significant event in all of history. God the Father sends the Son Why, John 3.16 says, because of love. The the son goes willingly. No one takes my life, Jesus says. No one, right? I go to the cross willingly. Why? To drink the cup of God's wrath. Do you remember that scene from Jesus' life? The night where he was betrayed and... The next day, he's facing the cross, and he's being arrested in the garden. And then Peter, what does he do? He pulls out a short sword, and then he what? He cuts the ear off of Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest. Jesus then heals the servant, and then he says this in John chapter 18, verse 11. 
Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So what's this cup? Right? Remember earlier, Jesus prayed that if there's any other way that we could do this, let's do it that way. Like, let this cup pass from me. Remember that? And then God the Father evidently has given him the answer. There, there's no other way for sin to be crushed and for love to triumph. And you know what Jesus said? All right, Lord. All right, Lord. I mean, this is not much later. This event in John 18, 11, I mean, that is amazing. He says, like, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Like, I, like it's not, he, he was upset about it. He talked to God about it. God told him the answer, and he's like, all right, let's do it. Man, our Lord Jesus, right? Oh, shall I not drink? What's this cup? Well, it's a symbol throughout the Bible referring to God's righteous anger against sin. For example, in Psalm 75, 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So this cup is the cup of God's wrath. It shows up again in Isaiah 51. It shows up again in Jeremiah 25. It shows up again in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, this cup of God's wrath. But you might say, but wait a minute, Andrew. Didn't you say that Nahum says that God's wrath is reserved only for his enemies? Yeah, I did. Wait a minute. I thought that the passage that you referred to in, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, said that part of that includes being separated from God's presence. Yeah, I did say that. That's, that's why Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Be because on the cross, Jesus took all our sin on himself. And the wrath of God, that cup, he drank it down to the dregs so that we could be forgiven and have life with God. Our question was, can a good God get angry and pour out his wrath? You see, if you, if you, you know, there's part of me that wants to, but if we minimize God's wrath, we will simultaneously minimize God's love demonstrated on the cross. We, we, we will flatten out the gospel to irrelevance. But when we ask the question, can a good God get angry and pour out his wrath? We say, yes. In fact, he must if he is creating a good world. But thank you, God, for the cross. At the cross, we see all of God's hatred for, for sin come, and we see all of God's love for us at the same time. Let's pray together. Father, you're good. And Lord, there's a lot of things that we don't, we don't understand about you. 
And there's a lot of things that even after they're explained, we don't feel comfortable with. But Father, I just pray that you would help us to, to trust you with those things. We, we, we believe you, God, but help our unbelief and help us follow.